thing in this hour is to devote uh, most of our attention to the 11th session. The question there is, is our school better than yours, the way I phrased that. I'll, I want to leave the last hour after our break to clear up all of the misconceptions that I created. <laughs> and I'm... Yes, Jay. We don't... <laughs> No, I know it. I know it. All <laughs> right, payback. I have truly enjoyed this week. It's been a great deal of fun, uh, a challenge to try to be ready for each session and have something that was uh, worthwhile, something that was meaningful. I know from talking with some of you that I definitely did make statements which were interpreted not as I intended them, but as your mind filtered them uh, and receive them. So uh, after we come back from the break, I want to give you opportunities to ask questions and to try to get clarity before we leave, you leave, and I get labeled a heretic for something that I said which I really didn't mean at all. Uh, so, But I want to, again, call your attention to a passage of Scripture that I think has some relevance to what we're going to be talking about in the next hour. And you may not see the connection immediately, but it's from uh, Ezra, chapter 7. If you want to have a fascinating book to study intensively, I recommend Ezra highly. Uh, the author is uh, perfect. The author is most excellent in what he tells us there. And you'd be surprised at all the little jewels. In case you're looking for it, it's not in the New Testament. It's, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicle, First and Second Kings. Ah, Ezra, 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 chapter seven. I made passing reference to this the other day in one of the other lectures. And uh, I want to come back to it a little bit more because uh, today we're going to deal with matters of uh, certification, state approval, things of that sort. And in the book of Ezra, you have a very uh, interesting relationship between the church and the state. And I want to simply call this to your attention because in our culture, there is a whole Anabaptist tradition which sees the state as the enemy. In the old creeds coming out of the Reformation, in the Anabaptist tradition, the church and the state are at war. And the devil is in control of the state, and Christ is in control of the church, and that is the great antithesis. And I say, no, 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 sorry, you can't get that out of Scripture. You get that from extra-scriptural sources, but not from the Bible. So I want to read Ezra chapter 7 beginning at verse 11. Let me just give you the background briefly here. The people of Israel have been in exile in Babylon and God has called them out in a very uh, fascinating, miraculous kind of way. He has pinpointed, designated Cyrus. Already in the time of Isaiah, some 200 years before, God announced through Isaiah, that he would appoint a man by the name of Cyrus who would then come 
some 200 years later and would release his people and bring them back. And uh, when Daniel told Cyrus that, when Daniel read the book of Isaiah to Cyrus, Cyrus must have just been blown out of the water. How can that be? A book that was written 200 years ago named me specifically the head of a kingdom which had never existed before, which just now comes into existence, and it's my task to bring God's people back to Jerusalem. And then listen to what Artaxerxes, a later king, says to Ezra the priest. I begin reading there at verse 13. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who wish to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the free will offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. You and your brother Jews may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God and anything else needed for the temple of your God that you may have occasion to supply you may provide from the royal treasury. Now I, King Artaxerxes, order all the treasurers of Trans-Euphrates to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest a teacher of the law of the God of heaven may ask of you up to a hundred talents of silver a hundred cores of wheat a hundred baths of wine a hundred baths of olive oil and salt without limit whatever the God of heaven has prescribed let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and of his sons? You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute, or duty on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, or other workers at this house of God. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. Very interesting. God uses Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, 
to rebuild his temple and even to provide the offerings for the sacrifices. And then he gives to the priest, Ezra, the power to appoint all the justices and the treasurers throughout that whole part of the world. Very, very fascinating part of, of biblical history here. Now, keep that in, in mind as we talk this morning about the kind of schools that we have and the kinds of programs the kind that we need to evaluate and consider. I'll, just as a way of slipping back into that and building a bridge, maybe we need a bridge upstairs. <laughs> or maybe we need to dynamite the bridge. I want to build a bridge to what we were talking about last night uh, because afterwards we were sitting around the fire over there and somebody uh, commented to me that triggered some, some thoughts here that I hadn't really covered. Uh, we have been saying all week long that we are trying to direct all of our energies, whether that's in home school, whether that's in elementary or secondary school, or whether that's in our church programs. We're trying to direct all of our energies toward the achieving of certain goals or certain objectives that we find in the Word of God. And I was saying last night that God demands of us in so many places in Scripture, He says, you must become wise. You must be able to distinguish between truth and falsehood. You must be able to be on guard because Satan is always working and he's always trying to lead you astray and what I was doing last night with that geology text is simply going through an exercise in reading and I, I was asked afterwards what else can you do to help equip people to become careful discerning critical readers well one of the things that I think all of us need to do is to make that a priority in our classes so that you keep that in mind as one of the prime objectives. I think that's a number one on the value scale. And you don't just act like a sponge. You don't just act like a parrot. But you are a discerning kind of person. You're always trying to teach your children, your church members, to be discerning, to make wise kinds of judgments. Now, if you work at that, I'm sure that God will equip you as you go along. You need to do it with television as well. Television is a tremendously powerful force in our lives. And instead of simply saying, kids, you've got a TV in your bedroom, which I don't recommend at all. One TV in the house and dad and mom control the switch. And if they want to watch some junk, offer to sit with them and watch the junk and critique it for them. And I can almost assure you <laughs> that they won't want to watch the junk with you. They won't. I used to do that with my daughter, our daughter. Uh, and she would want to watch some of these stupid soaps uh, 
fine, let's sit down and evaluate. You know, what is the theme of this? Oh, Dad, get out of here. No. We're going to watch this together. I'll, that kind of thing you need to do. But I would also suggest something. If you have a school program, and I think you can start this already at the junior high level, reestablish in your school forensics and debating programs. Very few schools today emphasize that. They are so preoccupied with sports and athletic kinds of activities, which in themselves are fine. I, I love sports too. But if you neglect some of those other kinds of programs, I think we fail to grab opportunities to e equip and to train our young people. I became, I think, a critical reader when I was in high school. I had all, in junior high too, my principal and teacher helped to train me. For four years, I was on the debating team. And now you say, yeah, you watched me for a week and you probably guessed that. <laughs> uh, but debating is, I think, a very important kind of skill for people to have, to learn the rules of debate, to learn how to analyze and attack a position. Uh, and we had to, one week we would have to debate the affirmative side, the next week we'd have to turn around and debate the negative side on a given issue. Uh, and it was a very good kind of experience that I look back on with a great deal of, of uh, good feeling. We had the same thing with forensics. Forensics is uh, public speaking of various types. Uh, I was always involved in what was called extemporaneous speaking. And you would be given a topic one hour prior to the time you had to go on stage. And you had one hour to dash to your notes or to a library and collect your thoughts and organize and then stand up there and give a five-minute extemporaneous speech. Uh, and that's challenging. It's fun. And it's very good. And there are other kinds. You can have uh, various types of uh, readings. Interpretive reading is you know, part of that. Uh, those kinds of activities used to be very prominent in secondary schools. Today you find very few schools that emphasize it. I think that's a good thing that you ought to get back to. If you're not connected with a school, you can do the same thing with your youth group in church. We, Wilma and I, are sponsors of our youth group, and we have 18 to 20 kids, and we meet one Sunday night a month after the evening service, and we discuss hot-button items in the church. We spent a couple of sessions talking about the age of the earth, about evolutionary theory. We've discussed with them the, the matter of women elders and women ministers, uh, things that are, you know, their parents are talking about. So the kids also need to talk about and think about those things. We've had them debate, form debating teams. We had an issue back in Illinois last winter <coughs> where a lady was going to be put to death by the state. Capital punishment for this woman who had murdered her husband, who had murdered her father, I believe, and uh, was just a wild, wicked woman who said, let me out of here and I'll go do it again. 
Uh, she had no remorse, no regrets whatsoever. Uh, and it became a very hot issue because capital punishment never applies to women. Only applies to men. It's okay to, to put to death men, criminals, but never women. Well, that was a great debate. Our kids had a great deal of fun on it. And uh, the Wednesday after we had debated it, uh, the governor commuted her to a life sentence. He didn't have the courage either. But it was that kind of thing, sharpening those young people in the issues of the day so that they, along with their parents, can talk intelligibly about them over the dinner table. Those are the kinds of things that I want to encourage and promote. Now, that is the bridge from last night. Now we can get more into the questions of session 11. Is our school better than your school? One of the things... One of the things that we have to do is something that we all do automatically. We make judgments about the quality of our schools, the quality of our programs. And we say in our just regular routines, you know, that's a good school. That's a terrible school. The Chicago public schools are the worst in the nation. Yeah, I would argue that point. Uh, if there's something worse in the country, that's uh, the awful, awful. They're, yeah, well, they're bad. How do you know? What are you using as your criteria? What gives you the right to make that kind of judgment? How can you defend such a statement? Just appeal to common consent or appeal to Rush Limbaugh? Uh, it has to be more than that. There has to be some sense and some rationale behind those kinds of judgments. And what I want to do is simply look at some of these issues. Uh, this is particularly true at college level. Colleges are very competitive, trying to compete for students, and they will do everything conceivable, sometimes shading the truth a little, sometimes shading it a great deal, to get students to come to their college and to enroll. I know the colleges that I'm most acquainted with, Kelvin, Trinity, Dort, Covenant, Westmont, all of those, uh, they're all doing it. They're all out there promoting. You get a, issues of Christianity today, and it's chock full of ads. And each one is putting its pitch out there. We are the, the best. Some of those colleges use secular evaluating boards, like U.S. News and World Report comes out each year with a listing of the best colleges in the Midwest, the best colleges in the Southeast, and things of that sort. Uh, some colleges, you know, when they get rated up there, just ride that hobby horse for, for years. You know, we were number one according to U.S. News and World Report. I don't really care what U.S. News and World Report is. What are they using as a criteria to judge? What are their criteria? Are those the same criteria that God would use if he were judging? 
would God rate your college or your school as number one in Southern California? And what criteria does God use? Because God is the great judge. But there's another dimension, another level to this, and that's the matter of state evaluations. I don't know how it works in California now, but when I was here back in the 70s, the state essentially said, we don't care about private Christian schools. We will let you alone except for the matters of fire, health, and safety. Is that still true? Pretty much. They don't force you to go through an accrediting process in your Christian schools. They're concerned about attendance records. I know we had state inspectors come through and they would always check the bathrooms to make sure that they were clean and sanitary. They check all the fire extinguishers. They check the seating capacity of the rooms. They check the, the enrollment that's right, of who was in school and so they could check. But that was about it. They didn't care about curriculum. Yes, Bill? Yes. Bill's comment is that a lot of people are against school vouchers because it means that the state is going to come in and accredit or evaluate your schools before they give you the check, before they give the money to you. Uh, and, and there's some legitimacy to that fear. Uh, I have worked with the State Department of Illinois very, very closely all the time I was at Trinity. Uh, I would make uh, two, three, four trips to Springfield, our capital, uh, every year and uh, meet with state officials, uh, served on a number of their state accreditation agencies. So uh, I'm not a stranger to that kind of thing at all. Uh, sometimes I think we take a Baptistic or Anabaptistic attitude. And I want to caution you against that. The state is one of God's agents. Don't assign them over to the devil. Once in a while, devilish characters get in state offices. And once in a while, devilish bureaucrats love to push their own agenda. But the state is still under the control of God. And God tells us in Romans 13, he tells us in 1 Peter that we must obey the king. We must pray, in fact, for the mayor, for the governor, for the state director of education. So it's not necessarily bad to have the state come in and evaluate your school. In Illinois, we have a situation where there are basically three categories, three types of activity at play. You may choose not to be accredited by the state. If you are a private or a parochial school, you may simply say, we choose not to have anybody come in and inspect us other than the, the health, safety, uh, fire codes. And that's all they do. And they say, you have met all the, the state codes for health, safety, fire, uh, fine. You may also, if you want, go to the state and say, we want to have you come in and inspect us because we want to have your stamp of approval. And then they simply come in 
and go through your programs and they look at your policies and they look at your curriculum, they look at your library, your media center, and after a day or maybe two days on your campus, they'll come back and say, you are an accredited school. You have our stamp of approval. You meet all the basic rules and laws of the state. And a number of schools choose to do that. The CSI schools, Christian Schools International, that I've worked with, have pretty much all chosen to do that. In order to get that, you must have certified teachers. Other schools say, we can't get certified teachers or we don't want certified teachers, we choose not to be accredited by the state. That's fine. But then you may have still a third type of evaluation that goes on, and that is an evaluation by an outside accrediting agency. Here in this part of the country, you have the Western, the WACS, Western Accrediting, what's it called? West WASP? W-A-S-C. Western Association of... Yeah, I'm... Western Association of Schools and Colleges. Ah, yes, that's right. And they come in and they will do an accreditation and then you can advertise your school as being WASC. That sounds strange. That's so close to WASP. Uh, you, you have accreditation from the Western Association. Uh, and again, there are pluses and minuses. Uh, I'm not terribly scared of that because I have been involved in that kind of process. And my experience has been that the... Mid-Atlantic, where, where not not to Mid-Atlantic, that was when I was in Jersey. Uh, the North Central, it's called the North Central Accrediting Agency, has some basic guidelines that were very livable, and they said we simply want you to articulate for us what your objectives and goals are, and then we want you to articulate for us exactly how you are achieving those goals, and then we want you to take the next step and test to see whether or not you are coming close to meeting those objectives. They didn't tell us what the goals and objectives had to be. We were always very upfront with saying we are a Christian college and we are trying very deliberately to train teachers to think in biblical terms and we are etc etc and they said fine. We're not there to dictate to you the goals but you must know what they are. And as long as you know what they are and you're working towards them and you're getting some measure of success, some measure of achievement, fine, you are accredited for another 10 years. So, yes, John. I think in the West it's different, but I'd like some correction. The West Association of Schools and Colleges here, the West Christian Seminary, was accredited by them and made some remarks about them not having female professors. Mm -hmm. That's a point well taken. Yes, uh, Another problem, Madam Dean, the student loans. I met you were accredited by the accredited association. The government wouldn't get a loan to student loans. 
There are some of those drawbacks that you might be prevented from getting student loans or other kinds of, uh, of financial help from the state. Yes, Larry. Yes, Dr. Garrison. There were several Jewish seminaries that were orthodox, and they got in trouble on this for no limit. And they complained to their congressmen, and the Westminster, what is Oh, yes. <laughs> Don't forget what happened with Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia when they were being pressured to put women on the board and women staff members. They went to President Bush, well, they went to Lamar Alexander, who was Secretary of Education, and Lamar Alexander weighed in on their side. And uh, you have to do that. A Christian has to sometimes get in there and lobby. Because if you don't stand firm, they will come in and you know, bring their agenda and try to force you. So it's, not a, it's not a cakewalk. Don't, don't get me wrong. You may have to be firm and you may have to contest them once in a while and stand up and say, no, wait a minute, I'm going to fight you on this one. Uh, you got to be courageous. Remember what God said to Joshua. You go into the promised land, be of good courage. Yes? Good. Yeah. I'll, I certainly appreciate your comments, and I agree with them 100% except. But you use that naughty word democracy. <laughs> I, I, let me just clear that up. I, I, okay. I, no, 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 no. It's a representative form of government. It's a Republican form of government, and I have no problems with that. Democracy is a philosophy. It's a religion about the nature of man. It's the kind of religion that is becoming our national religion. That's what I'm, that was one of the things I wanted to clear up this morning so that nobody thought I was anti-government, anti-our representative system, not at all. But otherwise your comments are very precise. We must not develop that kind of bombshell mentality, hide under a bunker. Uh -uh. We've got to be salt and light in the world. Larry. One thing that Washington has done with various schools is that if they have a position such as not wanting women on the board, feeling that that should not be done, they have done a service. They say, all right, we'll let you go with that. But you better be able to justify 
Yes. So the, the state, by making those demands, has forced us sometimes to do what we should have done prior. Yeah. I've had that experience. I'll, all the time that I was at Trinity Christian College, uh, I was obligated, just morally obligated to the state, so that once a year I would have to go out on an accreditation team to visit another college. And every time you tried to, and I, as a Christian, I tried to be very sympathetic to those colleges' Christian positions. But sometimes you had to force them to do what they should have done a long time ago. And uh, in that sense, it's helpful. So, okay, I want to move on because a lot of you are homeschoolers. And you say, how does that affect us? Must we get state approval? Must we do certain kinds of things to get the state to okay our existence? Uh, let me just ask, what is the situation in California? Does the state bother, harass, ignore homeschoolers? Nancy? It's quite open, so you can pretty much do, you don't have to send in uh, evaluations. Okay, that's happening, I think, in a lot of places around the country. And that's a tremendous change from what it was 10 years ago. Yes, Robin. Yes. Now, you need people like that who have the time and the skills uh, and people who dare to go to the state offices and challenge. Uh, that's, that's a very important kind of thing. If you have that kind of hands-off policy from the state, you still, though, have to ask yourself, Am I giving my children a good education? You can't avoid the question. And then you again have to ask yourself, how do I determine that? How do I determine whether or not my children are really getting a good education? John, you want to answer that? I have a question. Yes. Where are you going overall? Given what you taught us, and you were in six one. question is, how does the state accreditation body, whatever it might be, evaluate the number one priorities in our list of objectives? Most of the time, 
they don't know about them. They don't understand them. You have an opportunity there to educate them, to teach them, and to show them by your products that your children are model citizens. You want to do, and I don't know if you, if you have this, if we have this, in the prologue to the Westminster Confession of Faith. But in the Belgic Confession of Faith, there is a prologue. This was written by Guido de Bray on behalf of the churches, on behalf of the Calvinists, to show to the state that this is what we believe and these are the kinds of citizens that we are and we are obedient. That's why they had that whole section in there about obedience to the government and the, royal, and the authorities. And, the, and they were saying, and said, we are not afraid at all to put all of this up front for you. Now, in the case of Guido de Bray, he was killed for it. Uh, so watch out. <laughs> if you tell the state what it is you're really doing in your school program, they may be offended because they will be convicted they will feel guilty because they know they should be doing the same thing. And they may turn against you. So be on guard. Watch out for that. Yes? Um, I'm, I'm probably don't understand this issue, but by what authority does the state have to even look at the educational issue? Uh, I, I, given the different spheres of teaching going on. Yeah. Oh. I, I'm contending, you know, based on passages like we have here in Ezra, that God is sovereign and God appoints men to be king. He appoints men to be governor, to be the director of um, state education department. The book of Daniel is so powerful, preaching that message. And Nebuchadnezzar finally has to come to realize that he is not there by his own skill, by his own intelligence, or by his own assignment, but he has been appointed there by God to govern his people, to discipline his people during the time where they had to live in Babylon. Uh, that kind of passage tells me that God does use the state as one of his agents. He says in Romans 13, that you must <laughs> obey because they are my divine agents. I understand but, yeah. that yeah. he uses the state as one of his divine agents, but I always kind of took that in terms of uh, administering justice, defense, and things of that nature, rather than getting into things that are more probably the sphere of the family or perhaps the church, but I think the family is being good education. And I, I'm not necessarily, I see some historical examples of people having done that, but that's necessarily I can't I hope you hear the question back there uh, the question was uh, should the state be involved in such things as education or should they limit themselves to raising taxes raising armies uh, distributing justice etc uh, a very limited kind of role of government and uh, I would say no, I think, and, and I'm not a big government Democrat. Not at all. I'm, trust me, I'm a very conservative Republican. I'll, but I think we have been very strongly influenced by our culture around us. 
And our culture uh, tells us, on the one hand, you know, big government is awful and must get rid of it and all this kind of thing, and we must go back to a very narrow kind of assignment for government. Uh, my study of American history shows me that that was not always true. The Puritans advocated a very strong role for the, for the government. Uh, and the, the, the state of Massachusetts and the state of Illinois and the state of Iowa and most of the Midwest had the state built churches and the state paid pastor salaries. You didn't take collections during the 1820s, 1830s, and 1840s for, to pay for your church building or your pastor's salary. It was all taken care of tax money. And that was perfectly acceptable to our Puritan forebears. Uh, the, the Continental Congress, not the Continental Congress, the first United States Congress, did all kinds of things to promote religion, morality, and knowledge. That was assigned to the government. They ran all the schools for the most part. Because that was the task as it was outlined in the Massachusetts Constitution, in the Connecticut Constitution, and they got it basically from Kelvin's Institutes. You read the introduction, the, the parts of Kelvin's Institutes, and Kelvin gives a great deal of authority to the state. So I think we need to be careful that we don't respond too quickly to our culture that is sort of reacting against big government. Uh, we got to sort through that a bit more carefully. But that gets us a field uh, and gets us into another great big arena that we can't get out of. Pretty soon I'll be stuck there. <laughs> I want to move forward yet. Uh, one question in the back. I know you've got to pay taxes. Jesus was very explicit and said, you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And here's a coin. His picture's on it. Give it to him. Uh, but let me just hold off. And maybe during coffee break or maybe, maybe tomorrow afternoon on the beach we can talk about it. I, I got to cover a basic concept yet. Uh, and time is fleeting. When we talk about evaluation... I'm looking at that fourth question on that 11th sheet. Is good always a relative term, or is it absolute? What I'm suggesting to you is that all of the terms that we use to evaluate our schools, our educational programs, or our churches, or whatever, or if we're simply evaluating oranges or cars, all of them are relative. Now, sift through that for a minute. Good is a comparative adjective. Bad is a comparative adjective. Better is a comparative adjective. Best is a comparative adjective. They're all comparative terms. And they all are seen in relationship to a perfect model. 
Whenever you do evaluation, whenever you make any kind of pronouncement about good, bad, better, best, you are saying there exists somewhere a perfect orange. And this orange compares very, very favorably with that perfect orange. And therefore, I will say that this is one of the best oranges. Here's another orange that compares very poorly. Its color isn't good, it's shaped, it's spongy, it's, that's a bad orange. You're always comparing it to that perfect one. Now, some of you may have read Platonic philosophy, Plato's dialogues, and you say, ah, there is a perfect dog up in the sky, and it's a dachshund. <laughs> no, maybe it's... A, and, and there is a perfect car up there in the eternal world of ideas. Now, that's not what I'm talking about. There is a perfect plan of that God outlines for us in his word and says, this is what you have to be doing. This is how you have to go. You have to do this, this. You have to have these kinds of goals, objectives as your number one priorities. And there is a perfect teacher against which every other person has to be judged. Am I a good teacher? I'm not asking now the question of success. That's a totally different question. So much in our culture is geared to success. How successful am I? How much money have I made? How many students have gotten into Harvard because they were sitting in my class? How many state championship basketball teams have we produced? How many state championship gymnasts have we produced? We're not talking about success. We're talking about quality. Quality is different from success. It's different from quantity. It's the relationship between an existing thing and the perfect model that it ought to be imitating. And we have for us Jesus Christ, a perfect teacher. By human standards, you might say he wasn't terribly successful. He was killed in three years' time. He got so many people so angry, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! And they did. But that was the perfect model. He always spoke the truth. You, you look at Jesus Christ as that perfect teacher and sometimes you see him very angry. It's okay to be angry if you're righteously angry. It's okay to be firm. It's okay to punish if you're doing it righteously. If you truly love as Jesus loved, then you begin to find you know, that here, here is somebody who's a very good teacher didn't necessarily like her or him when I was sitting there in class didn't necessarily you know, send all kinds of accolades and thank yous afterwards but there was or there is that's what we do when we evaluate now we do the very same thing with objectives and goals part of being a good school is to have the right kinds of objectives and goals. If you are trying to do the right thing, 
You're trying to do what God demands of us, what he wants his children to learn. You may not always be successful. Sometimes you may be very frustrated. You say you work and work and work, and the kids still go off the wrong direction. You can still have the consolation, the comfort, that you are doing what God wants you to do. And then you can still feel and judge that you have a good school, a good program. That last question I raised there, is there some ultimate standard to use? Let me go back to one of the transparencies I used the other day. We started out this week talking about a philosophy, a set of ideas. And we said that all of them have to be coherent. They all have to hang together. And they have to build logically, sequentially on each other. And now when we get to the top rung, when we get to that final stage of evaluating what we have and what we've done, you want to go back? is hopefully you'll be forced right back to the scriptures as your standard. How does your school measure up to the demands of God in his word? That's how you determine whether or not you have a good school. If a school, if a program is teaching contrary to the word of God, if it is teaching kids that it's okay, it's perfectly okay to have premarital sex, it's perfectly okay to become a lesbian. As a lot of our schools are doing. It's perfectly okay to adopt the homosexual lifestyle. It's perfectly okay to cheat as long as you don't get caught. It's perfectly... That's a rotten, bad school. And it ought to be judged as such. The standard that we use, the standard that determines whether or not we're good, better, or best is the word of God. Never be ashamed of it. And always go back to it. Hopefully, this will help to drive you back there. Thank you very much. we got a break coming. You may need to get some stuff out of your rooms. Uh, we need to get some refreshments, and we'll be back here.